Welcome back to the show. This is Everything's Interesting with Jesse Mogul. Hello, everyone. Thank you for stopping by. Today's guest is Josh Dekel, author of Kiss the Ground, a book all about soil rejuvenation and better soil management so that in the future, our farmers will be able to really produce food packed with nutrients for an ever-expanding global population. If you, One of the changes you're looking to make this year is a better knowledge about our food resources, the nutrients in your food, and the nutrition that's going into your body. You're going to be thrilled that you stopped by today. Five, four, three, two, one, it's showtime. Welcome, Josh. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for being, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, it's a beautiful property. Oh, you're out here in Ohio. There's a you know, little buzzer. I didn't even know what I was driving into. I'm on an or- organic avocado farm. You are. You're on a five-acre organic experiment. You know, uh, we have transitioned this property. Like most places in the California Central Valley, you know, California produces the majority of the nation's fruits, vegetables, and nuts. So we're the largest agricultural gross receipts producer in the nation. So by dollar, California produces more food than any other any other state in the nation. The majority of that food is produced in a place called the Central Valley, which is an area that spans multiple counties, you know, uh, tens of millions of people. It's, it's basically the middle of California. And it's a, a former wetland that was drained in order to create a massive agricultural system. Controlled waterways, controlled, controlled pesticides, controlled herbicides, controlled fungicides, controlled synthetic nitrogen so it's a, it's a it's a moonscape if you drive out there if you you take off off of the i5 between la and san francisco you actually drive off the freeway which most people don't do no and you drive into that area it literally looks like we've terraformed the moon and the result of that is a tremendous amount of calories the flip side of that is a degradation of the land if you if you park your car on the side of one of those roads walk out into a field put your hand down and look down, what you're going to see is bare dirt between rows of crops. Put your hand into it, pick it up, and it's going to sift through your hand like sand. It's not soil anymore, it's dirt. Most of the life is inert, meaning it's not dead, but it's dormant or dying. Um, and so when you, look at, when you look at what it takes to grow our food, this is the largest food-producing state of the nation. Producing, if you eat lettuce, you eat lettuce from California. If you eat tomatoes, chances are you eat from California. If you eat strawberries, you definitely eat, you know, you definitely eat from this state. And if you eat nuts, you're absolutely eating from California. Right. Not to mention the fact that we produce tremendous amounts of meat, dairy, you know, and, and all of the basic big staple commodities, oranges, things like that. You eat from California if you eat in the United States. And what it takes to grow our food is touted in the 1970s and 1980s to be this green seed revolution. That's what it was called, the green revolution. It was really a project aimed at feeding India, aimed at feeding Africa, aimed at enhancing rice, aimed at enhancing these basic commodity crops. And it did that. It, it enabled far more calories per acre on big monocropped farms. But what we saw since the Green Revolution 
is we've lost one-third of the planet's topsoil. So we've lost approximately 33% of the farmable, arable land as a result of the green seed revolution. So you go, wait up, this revolution was supposed to produce more calories per acre. And in fact, what it did is it reduced the number of acres by 33% while increasing the production on the acres that are in production by, you know, a significant portion. But if you follow that trajectory, what we're doing is we're radically reducing the amount of available land to feed our radically growing population. Right. Doesn't take a genius to see that those two things are on a collision course. Yeah. I mean, you're jumping right into it. For those of uh, the listeners out there who, who, who heard me do the intro, guys, Josh wrote the book, Kiss the Ground. It's, you know, it's a great book. I've just barely gotten into it, but I'll, uh, it's all about soil regeneration. And we're here in California. I mean, you have a great experiment going on here in the Central Valley. How are you seeing the knowledge you've composed into this book? And are any of the farmers in the middle of the state willing to start listening? Because it sounds like you, you have a way. And when I met you at the Metal Talk, there, you have a lot of positivity about this. Uh, but for a lot of us, it sounds like this is huge too big to be actually work it's it here's the thing agriculture in the united states is huge we we cultivate 915 million acres of land that's almost a billion acres about 33 about a third is crops and about a th- two-thirds is rangeland dedicated to animals and when you think about the vast scale I mean, vast scale. If you get in a plane and you fly from one side of the country to another, those flyover states, right. that's where food He's is He's using produced. air quotes there, people. Don't get upset <laughs> yeah, with them. Flyover states, right? Um, that's where food is produced. That's where our food comes from. The majority of food that's produced in the U.S. is corn, soy, hay, and wheat. Just four crops. That's about 80%. Less than 5% of all growing regions is planted with actual vegetables that you can eat, green things. As a result, our diet mimics that. About 63% of the American diet is garbage. Yes. It comes out of a box, bag, carton, or a tube. And if you're eating fast food that looks like it did not come out of a box, bag, carton, or tube, that's because it came off the truck in boxes, bags, cartons, and tubes. <laughs> It was, re- you know, kitchens. Reassembled. Yeah, kitchens and fast food are just really assembly lines. They don't even have knives in some of these fast food places. They don't need shows up cut. Why would you need a knife? You're just taking a tube and squeezing on a thing, taking something else, reheating it, and sticking it together. And, you know, you've created a three-dimensional object that is arguably edible. Yes. But it is repackaged commodity garbage that's grown in the middle of the country that's destroying the soil. And, and what we talk about in Kiss the Ground you know, what we talk about in Kiss the Ground, the book, um, and really the whole movement, Kiss the Ground, it is about starting with the most fundamental resource of humanity, the soil. All civilizations are built on this resource. No greater resource exists, not water, not gold, not energy, nothing. Because without the soil, you cannot grow food. Yes, you can create vertical gardens, and there are these new experiments in hydroponics and all of that, Ultimately, all of those plants that grow need vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. And those vitamins and minerals come, come from one place. They come from the soil. So 
you know, we've already kind of talked through this. We've, we've blown through half of our soil globally since the start of agriculture. Just in the past 30 years, one-third of our soil is gone. And, and so the, the big question now certainly centers around food. It certainly centers around feeding humanity. And that's what we talk about in Kiss the Ground, the book, kissthegroundbook.com for folks who want to get a copy. I, and really, everyone should get a copy of this for Christmas. Yes. Every, everyone, this is a great stocking stuffer. This is a great conversation starter. What's great is, doesn't matter where you are politically. You know, if you are a rabid Trump supporter and you think the global warming movement is a bunch of, you know, cuckoo liberals, you will love this book. If you are one of those cuckoo liberals, you're <laughs> going to love this book. This is the kind of book that two people can read different generations and they can have a conversation at their Christmas dinner That's table awesome. about. Because really, it centralizes all those issues and it takes all the politics out of it. And it says, look, here's the deal. If we want to have stable climate, and I'm talking about local climate, I'm talking about Houston, Texas, with massive, massive hurricane that hit there. I'm talking about California with the massive wildfires that hit here. If you want stable local climate, you got you got to take care of the soil because the soil is the central resource that actually gives water to plants. Plants transpire that water, meaning they sweat it out through their leaves, and that water comes back to the land. It creates a localized ecosystemic water cycle. And we're taught in school that clouds come from the ocean. Well, yeah, about 50% of water that falls on the land comes from the ocean. The other 50% originates in the soil. Okay. So if we dry out the soil, we kill the water cycle locally, what's going to happen? Well, hot areas are going to get hotter because the land is going to bake. It's going to reflect heat into the atmosphere. You're going to get hot vortexes. It'll continue to push the water away. And here you've got a heat island. We think heat islands can happen in cities, what we don't think about is how they happen in places like the Central Valley of California or in the middle of Iowa. In the middle of Oklahoma. I'm, I'm originally from Oklahoma. Every Perfect kid example. is raised with the knowledge of the Dust Bowl era. And, you know, we watched the soil go away. Water stopped coming. I mean, everything, I mean, the windstorms there were are still talked about by people who weren't even there. Yeah. And this is the kind of information people need to know. And so, you know, that's what my listeners, even me, I'm thinking, okay, so we know the soil's bad. We're sitting there, we're thinking about Dust Bowl era of Oklahoma. We're thinking about just, I mean, you told in the metal conversation that when you got in front of us that there's already a place in Africa that was able to do this. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's jump into there real fast so yep. people understand that this is actually something that, that, that has been done. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and mm-hmm. years, but it is possible, and we should start thinking about it now. Yep. So, so, so let's take Oklahoma, your home state. Perfect example. I was just in Elk City, Oklahoma. It's about a two-hour drive out of um, Oklahoma City. Elk City, Oklahoma. Middle of nowhere, literally. You know, this is a, this is a, a, a epicenter of the Dust Bowl 80, 80 years ago. And when we look at the epicenter of the Dust Bowl, all you have to do, once again, drive out on the, drive out on the highway, walk out into a farmer's field, stick your hand in the ground, pull up your hand, see what you got. In Elk City, what you got is red dust. All of the topsoil is gone, all of it, and you're farming subsoil. You're farming the stuff that's literally supposed to be two to three feet down. Now, what's happening on a given day in Oklahoma? The wind blows. It still blows. It's mm-hmm. blowing all every day, the time. right? So, so in the Dust Bowl, we had these acute 
issues, these acute issues that were very, they were very immediate, they were big storms in the sky. Now we have a chronic issue. It's called wind all the time. And if you're standing on a field of soil or dirt, and you look across that field and you see, you see it getting picked up by the wind, think about this. A ton of soil in an acre, a ton, is the equivalent of a sheet of paper of thickness. Really? So all that weight for a sheet of paper in one, one sheet acre. of paper of thickness of soil in an acre is is a ton. So if you see soil blowing, you're watching tons blow away. Okay. So how do we stabilize that? How do we reverse that? How do we begin to recreate what used to be there? But remember, we've got 10 billion people by 2050. We still got to feed those 10 billion people. So it's all well and good to talk about reforesting and rewilding, but we have to feed people too, right? First things first, you got to stop the soil from blowing away. So we knew this in the 1930s. Franklin D. Roosevelt started the Soil Conservation Service in the 1930s. That became the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, part of the USDA. Basic stuff, okay? Every single field in this country should have windbreaks of trees around it. You know, you, you can drive across the Midwest. You can literally drive for six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours before you see a decent windbreak sometimes. It's just fields and fields and fields. What do you think is going to happen when the wind blows? Right. It blows away. It's, it's a no-brainer. So planting hedgerows, trees, and then a multi-species, a multi-species strip before the field. We, we, scientists have found that planting multi-species, strips of multi-species, you know, clover, grass, fescue, legumes. Good, I'm glad you mentioned that, because even I was like, what's a multi-species field? Vines, uh, perennials, you know, cane, uh, just a, a plethora of species, just a strip, you know, three to five feet around a field. That can increase the biodiversity in that field by 50, 60, 70 percent. It could create water holding capacity for that field. It can reduce runoff. It can reduce your soil erosion. What's biodiversity for those of us out there who, who aren't quite familiar with that term? What we're talking about is species diversity. So if you plant corn, 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 year in, year out, corn, 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 you've got a species above the ground. That's what we're all focused on here. Oh, we want that corn. We want that, we want that grain. Well, what nature's focused on is the hundreds of millions of species below the ground. Okay. So in a handful of healthy soil, there's more microorganisms than human beings that have ever lived. That's insane. That's I remember insane. you said that in the metal thing, and I'm driving in the car. I'm like, what did he just say? Microorganisms. So in, a, in a handful. In a handful of soil, there's more microorganisms than human beings who have ever lived. We're talking about literally billions and billions of life forms. And these things are microscopic. They're bacteria. They're fungi. They're interacting in webs of exchanges of minerals and of carbon, okay? So in a healthy soil ecosystem, you've got the equivalent of an elephant of weight under every acre of soil of microorganisms, okay? That weight of that population, that species diversity, is biodiversity. Okay. That I biodiversity that. in the soil holds the soil together. It builds pore spaces in the soil where water, little droplets of water, can literally go like sponge, like a, into a sponge, and the soil will hold that water. And the more water the, the soil retains, 
the more water the plants get, okay. the less you have to water them, the more the local water cycle works. So if a typical farmer is farming corn, soy, hay, or wheat today, and they say, what are a couple of typical practices I can do right now? You could take that 915 million production acres of agriculture in the U.S. Within three to five years, you could reduce the runoff by 50%. You could reduce soil erosion by 50%. You could increase the species diversity. You could increase water capacity. How? Plant some trees. Plant some rows of multiple species around the edges of those fields. And you're going to create a container. You're going to create a little ecosystem for that field to exist inside of. That's cool. It sounds like that'd be fun to do in your backyard with your own little home gardens, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. You're not talking about a lot of I mean, space here. I mean, obviously, it doesn't need to be five feet wide if it's yeah. in your backyard. No, and no. your garden's only eight by eight, sure. then it could just be a foot by foot or exactly. six inches by six inches. Exactly. The key is multiple species, so you get multiple root depths, multiple root interactions. And those interactions are going to help the mycorrhizal fungi and the other fungi to move nutrients through the soil, to move carbon okay. through the soil. In your presentation, you talk about how we should not be tilling because when we start to till at the beginning of spring, that's also whenever we're getting a majority of our rain, which means a lot of the, the poisons, the gases, whatever's going on, the, everything in the atmosphere is coming down. Plus, we're tilling, and it sounded like you said we're killing the soil when we till. Can we you do. explain that? Yeah. So, so a lot of these microorganisms that live in the soil, the fungi, for instance, exist over a large span of area. They are an interconnected network. And literally one plant, you know, on, on the north side of a field can tell another tree on the south side of the field, I need more nitrogen. I need more phosphorus. I need more zinc. And through that interconnected system, the mycorrhizal fungi will actually deliver from the tree to the plant. They have their own little internet going on underneath the ground. It is the internet of the soil. Wow. This is also the system of microbial life that stores carbon. Okay? So when we talk about climate change, you know, we've, we've got, I, I separate climate change into two different, two different categories. One is regional change. What is the regional change in your area? Is it hotter? Is it drier? Is it wetter? What's changed from 20 years ago to today? I can almost guarantee you that with whatever you say, you know, listener out there, you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking about your home, you go, you know, five, ten years ago, it was a lot wetter. Or five, ten years ago, it was a lot drier. Look at the land. How has the land changed? Are there more suburbs? Are there more subdivisions? Are there less trees? I can almost guarantee you that where you live has less foliage than it did ten years ago. Oh, yeah. Houston's problem. Houston's a great example. So, what about microclimates? Let's look at Houston, another great example. Why did Houston flood? Why did Houston flood when there was a hurricane? We can argue all we want about the weather changes. You, you, know, you can't argue about all the houses they built in the wetlands that no longer can absorb all the water. Right. So, so what's happening to the ground? The ground has become impermeable, meaning water cannot permeate. It cannot penetrate. Not only can it not penetrate, it can't store. The soil has no water storage capacity because the microbial life is dead or dormant. Okay, When the microbial life is flourishing, when you have good topsoil, you have water infiltration. The, sto the soil stores the water. It doesn't flood. 
So runoff is a self-perpetuating cycle. The more runoff you get, the worse the soil gets, the more runoff you're going to get the next time. Runoff leads to flooding. Flooding leads to cities that don't work. Okay, So we're literally talking about saving over the next 10, 20 years. We're literally talking about saving American towns and cities trillions of dollars by dealing with soil. It's the easy way to fix the problem. Right? We can put band-aids, you can build up roads, you can put dikes and levees. I got a simpler solution. How about you build your soil? So we talked about how to put trees and plant hedgerows around acres. What we're really interested in doing, what Kiss the Ground, Kiss the Ground, the book, again, kissthegroundbook.com. I think everyone should get this book. Yes, I wrote it. Yes, I'm promoting the book. <laughs> but this is a mission, okay? I want you to get the book because you're going to educate yourself on how to become a powerful change agent to save America and save the rest of the world, save the future, okay? And here's how we do it. Very simply, there's an area in China called the, 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 the Loess Plateau. It is the area where the Han people, the Han Dynasty was created. This is one of the, the, the foundations of human civilization, one of the first pillars of human civilization. Okay, So for thousands of years, this area has been farmed heavily. Up until about 30 years ago, it was rock, dry, no soil left whatsoever. This is an area the size of France. Okay, It's a huge area just desertified. That's what we call it. When humans wow. changed okay. lush land to desert. It was desertified. Nothing. Nothing. Okay? Over a period of 20 years, the there were several agencies, nonprofit agencies, that began to work with local people. And they said, look, we're going to do some simple things. We're going to plant some trees, but we're not going to we're not going to let your animals eat them. We're going to put bowls around the trees in the soil. So when it does rain, those rare occasions, the tree catches the rain in its bowl. We're going to begin to move your animals strategically from place to place so that their fertilization can actually help. We're going to plant some seeds. We're, and, and they created a program that re-terraformed that area. That area, now the size of France, is a lush green mega forest. They grow fruit, they grow food, they grow fiber, they grow animals, the people have income. It has literally transformed that region. They reverse terraformed it. They took it back from a desert and That's turned it awesome. back into green. And there are hundreds of examples of this all over the world. What was the timeline on that? It took 20 years. But remember, no Wi-Fi, no internet, no money, very simple low-tech solutions. This was all manual labor very little machinery either. So we've seen farms in America go from 1% organic matter in the soil, which means the soil is very poor, horrible quality, to 6% in a period of three to five years. And each doubling of organic matter is like an exponential power in terms of the soil's ability to sequester carbon, hold water, and maintain life. Those farms are able to produce 10 to 20 times more calories per acre. So I ask people in the Green Seed Revolution, with all of your GMOs, all your fancy technology and your sprays and your chemicals, aside from destroying soil, which has been the main result of that experiment, can you produce 10 to 20 times more calories per acre? 
because I know regenerative agriculture can because I've seen it all over the world. That's awesome. You know, you brought up something in the presentation too that I couldn't help but think of. So we were talking about, obviously monocrops are, are horrible and I don't think most people realize how many potatoes used, there used to be or how many different bananas and how everything's very monocropped. You discussed how the average age of a farmer is about 60 to 65 and they're going to be dying off or just retiring and so now we're going to be looking for younger people. My worry is that the Monsantos, the DuPonts, the chemical companies of the world, they're just going to swoop in and buy up that land and is it advantageous for them to care about the soil or just continue poisoning us at the method of, of which they have been now since you know GMO showed up in the late 70s? I mean, they took wheat from being a five-foot crop down to two, and yes, they double, triple, quadrupled the yield, but in the same instance, they don't seem to care about crop rotation at all. I'm worried that when the farmers die off, that it's just going to be the Monsantos of the world that come in and take over, and do they care at all about changing the soil? I would think because then they could make more money. But then again, if they have this biodiversity in the soil, are we having the same issue with insects above? So it's a great question. And and we cover it, you know, Kiss the Ground, we cover that extensively in, in the book, kissthegroundbook.com. Uh, and, and again, this book's available on Amazon. It's available as an audible book. It's available on iTunes. You can listen to it. On if iTunes. you see you in person, it's available. I got a signed copy yeah, today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's available wherever Josh Tekel is in yeah. the world. Uh, but there's so many ways to get the book. And, of course, supporting your local bookseller. We want people to actually get the physical book, too. Um, but the, the we cover this in the book. And here's the short answer to a longer story. And that is profit is ultimately driven by the market. Right now... There is a huge market for garbage food, garbage meat, garbage processed food, garbage packaged food, okay? That's driving the Monsantos of the world. And by the way, you know, we pick on Monsanto, but they're part of a huge conglomerate yes. of bioag and biotech companies, okay? Those companies are filled with well-meaning people who are doing the best that they can to feed the world. A lot of those people think that, you know, Progress through technology means more chemicals, more physics, meaning better machinery, you know, and and no respect for biology whatsoever. They weren't trained in biology. Why would they care about biology? They don't understand biology. Yeah. They want things that they can control in a lab and make the lab really the field, okay? And what we're talking about is that's great if you're, you know, in 1956, we're living in 2017. We're, we're getting ready to live in 2030 with 10 billion people. If that, that kind of thinking doesn't work anymore. That's a dead-end street. We have to upgrade our operating system and operate from biology. So what's the end result of the green seed revolution? Simple. You got 10 billion people, and you're going to half the area of farmable land again by 2050. So what does that mean? That means that you're not going to have enough land period. doesn't matter what you do. I don't care how many chemicals you use. I don't care how much GMO you use. You're not physically going to have enough land. That is the result of that system. That's why the system's breaking down. It's breaking down in India. It's breaking down in the United States. It's breaking down in China. Anywhere It's been that, broken in Africa. It's been broken in Africa for a long time. So what are we talking about? The bottom line. How many nutritious calories can you pull out of an acre sustainably? And with regenerative, we want to go beyond sustainable. We actually want to be building up the soil resource 
as we grow food, meaning the value of that acre is increasing monetarily. The monetizational value of that acre is increasing. So here's the, here's the choice that we're going to have as Americans, and it's going to happen within the next 10 years. Many of those 915 million acres are going to be up for grabs. Do we see a young generation of farmers and ranchers moving in, taking over that land, and moving that land toward regenerative agriculture? Or do we see farms consolidating and coming under corporate control and becoming extensions of the bioag experiment? I think both things will happen. The question is which one is going to win. I believe regenerative agriculture will win because I believe in the power of economics over the power of corruption. The only reason the current system exists is because of corruption. The current system is this. 80% of our cropland is dedicated to corn, soy, hay, and wheat. Why? Because a farmer that plants corn is guaranteed a minimum price for that corn, no matter what. A farmer has to make about $20 an acre to stay in business. Average corn farmer in the U.S. making about $2 an acre. Where's the other $18 coming from? Oh, that's coming from us. That's coming from us. So that's corruption. That's bastardization of a market. That's a monopoly created by a government that is out of control. And if we're going to feed the world, truly feed the world, that has to stop. So whether by force or revolution or ousting whoever's in power in government or whether just by sheer will of young farmers, that system will die. That is a huge waste of American money. Yeah. And, of course, that props up the worldwide system of doing the same thing, exporting this, this phony technology to other countries. So let's talk about the bottom line. Average farm in the U.S. makes $2 an acre. A regenerative farmer ranching their animals, moving their animals across the land, planting multiple species in between crops, meaning not just around the edges of the field, but on the field, so that carbon's going into the field between plantings. Those animals move across the field. They eat those multi-species cover crops. They poop on the land. That poop is fertilizer. The land is then worked into a crop. There's no tilling. All the machinery used is no-till. That system can yield $100 an acre. That's a 50x increase. It sounds like you, could, you should be able to get the small farmers or the ones at least who aren't trying to deal with 50,000 acres, although they probably need it just as much, in on this. Yes. Because, you know, I know so many of my friends, I love to cook. My One of my business partners, uh, he's also my roommate, we love to cook. So many of my friends don't know how to cook. So you're asking people to stop eating things out of boxes, bags, and tubes, and frozen. And it's like, I'm just talking about, like, let's learn how to cut up a Brussels sprout and saute it in some lemon and avocado oil. It's not groundbreaking. But at the same time, it seems like a lot of people don't, they've lost a connection with their food. Not yes. just the food source yes. and the food supply, but just in general, they've lost connection with their food. Yeah. That seems to me, like if you're trying to get the consumer to demand more and start and start expecting that we're not just doing nothing but monocrops and 80% of the crops we do plant are the four you've already mentioned, it's asking a lot of a population that doesn't even seem like they give a damn. Yeah. Well, look, people, people don't give a damn until they get cancer. People don't give a damn until they get diabetes. People don't give a damn until their kid is diagnosed with prenatal cancer and ADHD and until, you know, they start noticing that their child doesn't seem as quick 
as they were a couple of years ago. You know, we've actually seen, <laughs> we've got about three pounds of pesticides that's sprayed per American per year, okay? The people who are most affected by that by far are children because they're in a developmental stage. Through epigenetic traits, we know that the epigenetic traits get turned on by environmental factors. The number one environmental toxic factor in the United States, number one, by mass, by scale, by scope, by any measure you want to go by, the number one factor is pesticides. Three pounds per American per year. So if your child has ADHD, if your child has ADD, if your child has some kind of Hodgkin's lymphoma, if you're seeing some kind of, we've seen studies that directly correlate lower IQs over time to increased exposure from pesticides. Where are they getting those pesticides? From the crap they're eating. Yep. Okay. Very simple. Yes, there is airborne exposure. Yes, there is waterborne exposure. We see those instances too. But by far, the in most environmental contact, meaning contact in the environment that you as a human being have, is through what you eat. So I don't care if you don't care about the global warming situation or if you don't care about what farmers are making. People need to start thinking about what they're putting in their children's mouths. That needs to be a priority. Because if you're feeding them McDonald's, if you're feeding them fast food, that garbage is filled with toxins. Okay? So, fine. Don't care about the environment. But let's talk about kids. The other thing is, it's not that hard to shift your demand. People think, oh my God, I'm going to have to eat kale all the time. And I don't want to yeah. just, eat, you know, I don't want to be like a sprout muncher, you know, like. Okay, let's talk about the situation, really. The vast majority of, of the, the meat products that we eat in America, 25% of our diet is meat. Those meat products come from factory farms. Yeah. They're CAFOs. You know, they're concentrated the ranch, animal uh, feed operations. Porter's Ranch, which is the one in the middle of the Central Valley that's humongous. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, hashtag Cowschwitz if you're on Twitter. Yeah. There's a whole conversation online. Hashtag Cowschwitz. Just look it up. Uh, by the way, they do weddings at that big uh, that big CAFO, that big factory farm. If you'd like to get married there, you can get married. Well, your wedding dress will never smell right. Uh, you know, hey, look, it, it, you'll have good steak, right? Yeah. <laughs> the problem is that steak doesn't even taste that good, honestly. It really doesn't. And so the biggest thing that you can demand, that you can shift your demand, shift your demand away from cat CAFO meat, away from meat that's grown in a concentrated animal feed operation. It is extremely unhealthy for you. It is heart unhealthy. It is cholesterol unhealthy. It is unhealthy for every part of you. It's filled with stress. It's filled with hormones, filled with antibiotics, filled with, filled with pesticides. Why would you put that in your body unless there was no other choice? Right. And granted, sometimes there are no other choices. Great. Bless your food, eat it, be thankful for it. But if you have a choice, do not eat factory farmed meat. What is the alternative? Okay, let's look at the alternative. Find pasture-raised meat. Meat that was raised the entire life of that meat on a pasture. Most meat starts, most cattle start off in a pasture, and then they're moved into a confined animal feed operation, and they're fed corn, and then they die. That's what they mean by um, grass-fed, but then you want to look for grass-finished. 
when it comes to your beef. And I we just got done buying a $25 chicken from Bel Campo just because it was pasture-raised the entire way through, which yep. means it just ate seeds and worms and yep. whatever chickens normally eat. I remember yep. we had a bunch when I was a kid. We never <laughs> seemed to worry about feeding them very often. They seemed to figure it out on their own. <laughs> you know, animals know how to eat. We've just screwed up that system by shoving the wrong thing down their throats. So, yes, is your meat going to be more expensive? At first, it might be. You may then, if you have a budget for your meat in your household, you may be eating less because your budget is set, okay? Let's be let's be honest. Let's not take the white privilege conversation of like, okay, you can only eat this, you know, perfect grass-fed meat and you have to spend a lot of money. You might be eating less, okay? But what you are eating when you eat that other factory farmed meat, usually a chicken that's sold is injected with about 30% salt water. So first of all, you're not even getting the weight of that animal that you think you're getting. You're getting a bunch of sodium. What does that do? What does that do for your heart? That creates heart disease, right? Americans eat 70% too much sodium. Why? Because we're getting it injected in our meat, people. Just to give it weight. Just to give it weight. Is that, what provi- is that, what, is that what's providing the juiciness to those already pre-cooked chickens at part Costco of what, for five bucks? That's part of what you provides You know that's that not good chicken. Right. Five dollars. No. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's filled with, it's filled with bad fats. Uh, it's filled with really, 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 really deleterious things to your health. So let's say that you're actually only getting, for your dollar, 50% of that dollar is actually any kind of value to your body whatsoever. Well, if you're getting only half of that value, why wouldn't you spend the same amount of money and get half as much meat that's actually valuable for your body, that's right. not filled with all that garbage? That's a good math number for people to remember. Just, just so, so yeah, and then it is about taking other options into your diet, you know, creating a diet set of choices where can you eat a little more salad? Can you eat a little more greens? Just in general, can you, can you find those things around the edges of the supermarket that might be fresh? Experiment with them. Learn how to pack them fast. Eat them fast. You know, we live in a fast culture, but it is about changing. Ultimately, it's about changing demand so that we can change the pressure. Are we going to change government? Absolutely, we're going to change government. Are we going to change farming? All that stuff will change. What can you do? This is You make a choice three times a day. You know, I'm not going to tell people to screw in a new light bulb. Okay, That costs you money. My objective at the end of the day is to save you money. How? If you spend the same amount of money on nutritious, healthy foods, you're saving money. Why? Doctors cost money. Yeah. Costs money to get sick. Takes you away from work. Takes your kids away from school. It costs money when your child is not as sharp mentally as they could be. That's going to cost them productivity. It's going to cost them ultimately in their job, in their life, in their choices. So healthy foods, healthy body, healthy mind, healthy soil, healthy climate. That's what we're talking about. That's uh, it, it needs to become a movement. When you're when you're talking about, <laughs> I remember at some point my my childhood, my mom would start letting me have a diet soda and a Debbie snack for breakfast, and I'm like, oh. no wonder I was so oh. hyper going in. And oh. I, you know, about ten months ago when I decided to change my life for the better, one of the first things I did is I went after my nutrition, and I, mm-hmm. went, I figured out I was a fast oxidizer. Mm-hmm. I figured out I, um, Dr. Gundry had a book called The Plant Paradoxes. Mm-hmm. It, these it, those two books, these your book and his book, side by side, people would change their diets because I, I went into uh, 
ketosis, mm-hmm. the ketogenics or whatever is for how I eat now. And like, I stopped eating 180 grams of protein a day and took it down to like 40 or 60. That's animal. I do a lot of plant proteins. Yep. Yep. And so people were like, oh, well, I can't afford my normal diet with the meat. Yeah, yeah, you're probably overeating it because that whole pyramid that was oh, developed the in the 60s is, 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 is crap. Total lie. It was, totally. it was, it was yeah. just a bunch of lobbyists yeah. built it to specifically make money. Totally. Yeah, to, to, to prop up the corn CAFO complex, to prop up the system that would ultimately be propped up by tax dollars, by you government subsidies. You went over, you said CAFO earlier, I, then I, I recognize that you went and said the acronym, but for the listeners out there who missed that, say what CAFO is. So, so it's a concentrated animal feed operation, and it can be for cattle, it can be for chickens, it can be from hogs. But it's, you shove a bunch of animals, either indoors or outdoors, into a small area, and you feed them grain. And they're sick. And because they're sick, you have to prop them up on antibiotics. And because they're propped up on antibiotics, they don't have defense mechanisms, so they get a lot of pests. So then you spray them with pesticides, and so they get sicker. So you have to prop them up. <laughs> and because they're what not a cycle we've created. And because they're not growing normally, you prop them up with hormones to get them to grow faster. And so all of this, all these chemicals are kind of propping up this meat. So look, I think eating meat, not eating meat, that's a personal choice. Uh, you have to know what's right for your body. You have to know what's right for your personal ethics. I'm not going to tell anybody who does not eat meat to eat meat. That's 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 inappropriate. But none of us should be supporting that system, you know, whether we, we eat meat or not. Nobody should support the system of confined animal feed operations, not for your own health, not for the health of the planet. And and so what are we talking about at the end of the day? I talked a little bit about reverse terraforming. And th- we, we talk about this in the book, Kiss the Ground, Again, it's available on Amazon. Get it. Give it to all your friends. Read it. Listen to it on Audible. Listen to it on iTunes. Um, I read the book personally. I made sure that every sentence was, you know, really perfect so that the listener really has the full experience of the of the 20 Are years. you the Audible voice? Yeah, I'm the Audible voice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have the book, but I love Audible, so I'm to scoop that up. You'll love the Audible. It, you know, it really was, it, we spent 100 hours doing the Audible book. I don't know any author who spent 100 hours For a lot of time. I thought you'd just read the book. No, it took 100 <laughs> hours. We worked with uh, you know, team technicians, made sure everything is really spot on. It's, it's, a, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful read. But um, when you understand the dynamics of land, you begin to learn about something called ecological memory. Okay? And the ecological memory doesn't have anything to do with human beings. Okay. It doesn't mean, do you remember the, where the tree used to be before they chopped it down? When land gets dry and barren and hard, not everything has died. Spores, molds, fungus, bacteria, all of those things can lay dormant for tens, hundreds, even thousands of years. Perfect example. They were going to shoot the most recent Mad Max movie in the middle of Australia. The middle of Australia is a former... Uh, inland sea, okay? Huge, vast desert, right? But if you dig into that desert, you find shells because it used to be an ocean. But it's a desert today. So off they go. They're getting ready to shoot Mad Max in the middle of Australia. Boy, they're going to have a great time because it's just a big desert. There's no towns. There's nothing, right? It's desolate. Desolate. What happens? A huge rainstorm. A freak rainstorm, right? What happens to the desert? Less than a week later, it is green. Of those desert, those desert blooms like we had in, s- in Southern California exactly. when we had all the rain in January. It's green February. as far as the eye can see. There's flowers blooming. There's grass. There's life. 
Okay, where did that come from? It, the, it wasn't in the rain. The spores were dormant in the sand. So herein lies the power of reverse terraforming, of when we've stripped land away, now we're going to terraform it back. Are we going to go out there and replant everything? Yeah, we're going to take some seeds. But the power of the land is stored in the land. It's an operating system that's been turned off, but not wiped clean. So when we bring back some species, and we bring back the water cycle, and we start to manually pump it and get it going, you can bring land fully back to life. That's awesome. That's the power. That's what we've seen in the Loess Plateau in China. That's what we've been seeing on these farms in America that have started regenerative agriculture. Land that has been chemically bombed. That's what I'm seeing on my own land. Five acres. We've been here for four years. We stopped all spraying, all pesticides, all fertilizers. Nothing goes on this land except for water and an occasional organic amendment. Occasional bit of compost. That's all we put. Species sprouting up all sorts of places. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing how beautiful this property is. Species everywhere. Birds, bees, butterflies, trees, plants. What spe people come in here and then where they're trying to figure out what the species are. Because these, some of these are native species that are coming back to life because we're not moving the land. We're not changing anything. We're letting it regrow right now. All of the land is covered with a layer of mulch, meaning the soil is blanketed. It is not exposed to the sun. It is not being beaten meaning moisture can begin to go back into that soil. So there are other processes. We will regenerate this land. In five years, you will come back, and it will be completely green, the whole thing. doesn't matter what time of year, because we're getting the native plants back first, and then we're going to start to use them to really build out the land. You know, when, when we talked, I mean, we've talked but when we were talking about the food chain earlier, it's basically what I've learned is you are what you eat eats. And so that's why you got to care about the animals that you're consuming. And you definitely got to care about the fruits and vegetables for those people out there who want to start to pay more attention to, to, and know what, what they eat. You are what you eat eats. Yeah, say <laughs> yes. that 10 times fast. Yeah. They want to know what they eat. Right. They want to know what they're eating is yeah. eating. Yeah. How can they specifically find these farms that care about the kiss the ground movement that are out there doing the, the soil regeneration work? Because, you know, most of the time you buy something and there's like a four digit code on a pair. You right. don't really know where it came from. Yeah. They might say product of USA or Mexico or California, but yeah. that's about all the information mm -hmm. you get. Uh, is that is is there a way for them to know or or has that been done specifically by the agriculture industry so that people can't find the source of where their their food is coming from? I, I don't think there's anything nefarious in, in that sort of labeling per se, but I, I think what's happened over time is we've become addicts for visual quality, not oh, for yeah. taste, not for texture, not for nutritional value. We've become addicts of visual quality. So we walk into a supermarket and we're like, that apple doesn't look right. I'm not buying it. Well, what does that tell the supermarket to do? Only buy perfect apples. For instance, when we were we were a commercial avocado operation when we bought this property, I involved myself in the picking of the avocados. So I went out with the guys. You know, all of these guys are, are Latin American guys, most of them seasonal workers. Okay, this is a microcosm of agriculture, right? So okay, lowest paid people on the on the on the food chain are pickers, right? Who comes? Oh, the pickers, right? Okay. So I'm like, okay, good. I'll do that with you. So went out. 30% of the avocados, they wouldn't even put in the bins. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, they, they won't sell them. They won't take them. So I called the co avocado company. I said, come out here. 
I said, what's wrong with these avocados? And they said, no, we won't take those. We can't sell them to the supermarkets. And so we started a program to give away avocados to you know local people and make sure hungry people had them and all this kind of stuff. But you realize... You know, 50% of our food gets thrown away before it ever gets to the supermarket. Right, which is horrifying. So let's break that process. Let's stop that insanity. First things first, if you have access to some kind of a farmer's market, go to it. Begin to talk to the people there. Where did you come from? Where's your farm? What's your soil like? Can I come visit? Would you take me on a tour? Oh, if you don't have money to go to go to their farm, can I volunteer in your farm stand? You know, people complain to me all the time. Oh, farmers markets are for rich white people. Did you ever negotiate? Have right. you? Have you? I, I need help. No one has ever <laughs> said to me. I've gone to farmers markets all over the country, and I've said, you know, I don't have five bucks for that. I'll give you two dollars. Is that all right? I've never had anybody say no. Okay. Um, you know, farmers need volunteers. Farmers markets need volunteers at their stands. Farmers are negotiable. Farmers are open. If a farmer doesn't want you to come see their operation, that's a red flag. Yeah, don't buy their food from them. Right. If you get to know a farmer and you want to give them something, give them a copy of Kiss the Ground, the book. There's valuable information in there for farmers. So it's really like about that. rebuilding food relationships. So it's it's not just about what you what 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 you eat eats. It's what what you eat has interacted with? What farmer have they interacted with? Who's the caretaker? Farmers are the most important people in our society. They're probably some of the worst treated people. And I mean all farmers. I don't, you know, look, I think, I don't think anyone wants to bomb the land with chemicals. That's not a desire. Farmers are doing what they think they have to do to make the next payment cycle. Yeah, on just that to make it to the next season. Yeah, make the next payment cycle on that land. A lot of them don't own their own land. A lot of rented land. About 40 to 50% of land, farmed land in the U.S. is rented. Now, when it's rented like that, does that mean that they have the right to do soil regeneration if they want? They just need to pay the lease, basically. Or they are they the being lease. bossed around? Because that's going to go to the 65-year-old yep. and yep. over farmers who Sometimes are they're bossed around. Sometimes they're bossed around. So it's so it's so there's part of a strategy there. How do you get the land owner excited about this? You know, organic matter has, a, has an intrinsic economic value. It's about $750 an acre. So every acre where we add 1% organic matter, we've added $750 to that acre of value permanently to that land. Now, when we see things in the grocery store labeled organic, non-GMO, I read a lot about this, so I obviously have have a better, I'm not going to say obviously have a better knowledge of it, I just have a knowledge of it. But when we see organic or non-GMO, can we trust that these people are out there doing well with the land and the soil, or is this, they're just, they're not using pesticides and, and sprays, but at the same time, they don't necessarily know if they're helping the soil regenerate. Organic, on the whole, is better okay it is better certainly better for you because it's the only label with government control with government certification with government audits regular audits of those farmers that assure that you're not getting the pesticides that other foods are getting okay which means they're not going into the soil they're not going to the ecosystem they're not going to the watershed okay that's important for everyone is it better for the soil on it on on the whole it may or may not be better for the soil. The organic label is going through a ratification right now. Um, 
big, huge monocrop organic farms that grow tremendous quantities of the same thing can have very poor soils, okay? That is totally possible. But if you actually follow the organic standard as it is written, there's a huge portion of that standard that's devoted to increasing the organic matter of the soil. So here's the thing. We've got to encourage our organic farmers to go no-till. We've got to encourage them to go no-till. That's the biggest thing that's going to help their soil quality. We've got to encourage them to plant those trees around their, 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 their crops. We've got to encourage them to make sure that those hedgerows, those rows of cover crops, that they're a little wider, a little bigger, more species, more diversity. Those are the things that are really going to help. The organic standard's good. It's very good. We need to encourage the upholding of the intention of the standard. Okay. Whenever I, I mean, you know, I was really excited to see Whole Foods purchased by Bezos and, and Amazon. I thought that that could go a long way for lowering food prices. And for a lot of people, I mean, Whole Foods used to be called Whole Paycheck. I've gone in recently. It's substantially lower, and in mm. some cases, uh, phenomenally lower to me. What? How do the chain supermarkets play their role in this? As far as could I mean, if they cared enough, they could contact the farms and say, "We will only be buying from soil regeneration farms. We will only care about the people who are giving back to the land and not just stripping it." And I and I I can see Bezos playing a huge role in that because I mean that guy's been operating Amazon basically in the black for years and been okay with it. So he's already lowering prices and doesn't even care. He's like, we're just going to take over the market. But I wonder the Kroger's and the Ralph's and the Vaughn's and the pavilions out there, mm. you know, do they even care? And what role could they play if they said, we're only going to sell, you know, Josh's ugly avocados from now on. And you either buy our ugly avocados or you just never get to have an avocado again. Uh, look, I think that there are different parts of this movement. And that's uh, the movement is is having to define itself. You know, right now it's struggling because one part of the movement is supporting organic. Organic is going mainstream. Oh yeah, right. It's only three percent of our food today, but you know, over the course of the next five or ten years, it's going to become mainstream. No one wants chemicals in their food. No one wants to feed that to their kid. You know, let's face it, that's a dumb idea, right? Yes, it's better to feed. <laughs> Nutritious foods that aren't grown in pesticides and chemicals. That's a good idea. So organic's going to become mainstream. We need to support that. We need to support the big farms. We need to support the big chains, the Kroger's, the Vons, the Costco's, all of them. Yay. Make it all organic. Keep going, guys. Meanwhile, over here on the bleeding edge side, you know, where we're the disruptors, we're going to support the avant-garde, medium-scale farmer. We're going to go to them at the farmer's market. We're going to say, I love you. I love your produce. I'm going to support you financially, or I'm going to volunteer with you, or I'm going to help you in some way, shape, or form. I want, you to I want you to help in the soil movement. Are you aware of the soil movement? Have you read Kiss the Ground? Are you part of the, are you part of the tribe? Are you tilling? Time to stop tilling. Time to start building your soil. You're going to get more money because your crops are going to be better. I'm going to help you do it. That's what we need to do. We need to strengthen the big part of the movement, which is the organic label. Yay, go organic. And we need to strengthen the nascent soil movement. Both parts can operate at the same time. And eventually, organic will go mainstream, and then soil-based food, hypernutritious food that's building up the soil, regenerative food, will move into the, the category where organic is now. 
organic will become yeah, normal. Be labels on yeah. for it. On yeah, the there'll food. probably be labels. But you know, really, within the next five or ten years, we're going to see a, an app and a device on our iPhones and Androids, or smartphones. It's going to be like a small click-in device that you will be able to scan food in supermarket. It'll tell you the nutritional density. It'll tell you what pesticides are in there, and it'll give you a reading of poor, good, or excellent. That's a, you know, the moment you said, I'm like, yeah, I think there's already so many apps that can do QR readings and things of that nature. Yeah. Why can't I just pick up that pair with the 4429 code and scan it and know exactly where it came from? This is going to be even deeper. It's not going to worry about, it's, it's not going to care about the sticker on the pair. It's going to read the pair. That's going to infrared, thermal, and, and, and literally go into the pair and scan that pair for what is the density and nutritional value of that pair. That is phenomenal. Scanning technology has become so cheap. Oh yeah, little little mini scanners that can that can d use multiple different arrays to pull multiple data points. That's I can see grocery stores offering those. You know, to give no, us, I give, don't know. Give us your driver's <laughs> license. Not at we'll first. Give, yeah, they're, like, <laughs> they're not going to want it. We did not want you to know that that is seventy-five percent poison. Yeah, um, they're gonna, not going to want you to see that your food is filled <laughs> with Roundup and Paraquat and Livesate and Two Four D. But that's going to be a real tipping point, and that's coming. There's several prototypes out, um, nothing out on the market yet, but I think within three to five years, we're going to see the first ones out on the market. That's awesome. And there's no self-respecting, you know, soccer mom that's not going to have that little device on her iPhone. Yeah. She's, you know, every mom is going to be like, let me see which peanut butter is going to poison my kid. Right. I don't you care what your label says. I, my I, I don't think they the realize truth. how much it's happening. Yeah. You know, which, I mean, yeah, you know, you see something on Dateline 2020, you know, I mean, I can go to Costco and I can buy their organic turkey burger. And we've done this. My roommate and I have done this. And yeah. we bought the regular. And it w the moment we started using the organic turkey burger, it sticks to your hands. It's it's very weird. Mm. It, it's, it's, the texture is completely different. It's nothing like the normal, I, I shouldn't call it normal, the poison turkey burger. Yeah. And I remember, like, I was like, can we just go back to the normal poison turkey burger because I can't roll these things into little meatballs and he's like this this is how much better it is and you go get a Bel Campo chicken and you, or you go you order something from Thrive Market and you then you compare that to what you what I would just call it from now on the poison food right and the taste and the texture everything is remarkably different and yeah. I think more people need to do that the side-by-side -side comparison mm -hmm. you know and it might be a little bit more difficult to roll out a, a hamburger patty with the organic turkey burger but man the taste the taste of that Bel Campo chicken blew my mind yeah it was like what I remember from the farm when I was a kid. Yeah. And so it, it's out there and it's available. And, and if more places have to start to shift that way, like you talked about the solar panel or the battery technology in your presentation, mm -hmm. eventually it just becomes where this is the only thing the consumer will buy. And yeah. people will figure out a way to make it get cheaper so that their work. I mean, if you had 5,000 acres of pasture-raised chickens, they would be cheaper. But you're not going to do that if you can just pump out – 10 chickens at the same time you pimp out one and you can sell more to Costco. Yeah. And and so, you know, part, part of it's demand-based, part of it's... This is a movement. And movements, you know, they, they are diverse. They are decentralized. They are based in information, which is why the education is so important. The book is so important. Um, so I hope everybody joins it in some respect, whether it's by your food choices, by interfacing with the farmer's market, by putting pressure on local city-state elected officials. There are so many points of entry. And, and of course, the whole last chapter of the book, chapter 10, it's just it's just things you can do and resources. You answer the next question because so many people out there are going to say, okay, I want to become involved. Yep. About, you know, do, uh, could they start like a local chapter of Absolutely. Kiss the Ground yes. and say, we're going to go around, everybody go to one farm, find yep. out what they're doing. Yep. Like they're, they're, it's going to take effort, yep. which I feel like, 
people feel like they're, people already think they're so crunched for time. Yeah. It's like, oh, great. Now I got to go research where my food comes yeah, from, well, and now I got to saute things. I, look, I, I don't want to <laughs> give anybody any, any work to do, but I will tell you this. Our, my family has really taken this on. You know, our weekly thing, our weekly mission is at least one of the kids joins me at the farmer's market. Everyone at the farmer's market knows my kids by name. My kids know the foods. They know fruits. They know vegetables. They select carrots. You know, my kids are, are like 10 months and three and a half months years old, right? But that kind of intimate connection, we've built that and we're going to continue to build that. That's powerful. It's fun. Yes, does it take time from our week? Yeah, we could be doing something else. We could be watching TV. You know that? Mm-hmm. But instead... You know, we involve our family in nutritional choices. We involve our family in, in composting. We involve our family in land. You know, what, what are we doing in our gardens and our land? That's fun. Yeah. How many cool things can you point to that are going to add tremendous value to your family and that are going to be really enjoyable? This is going to be fun. This is yeah. a fun movement filled with really cool people who are up to cool things. Yeah. A- and your kids will love it if you have kids. So... Uh, you know, I don't want anybody to take this on. It's like another have to. If it's a have to, you know, try and tr- turn it around. Look, look, look at where the value can be for for you and your community and and your children. The taste alone on your plate is going to be phenomenal. Yeah. I, the moment I switched to all organic diet, I noticed it. I, I eat substantially less than I mean now I, I eat a lot of my calories in good fats because that's what I've noticed works for my body but it, it's been phenomenal the change as soon as I started following like even Facebook groups like March Against Monsanto or Grow Food Not Lawns right you know like the, the you know they're always pushing you know show kids how to farm we should all have a garden in our backyard and yeah, so doesn't have to yeah, be huge get a planter box if you live in an apartment yeah you know, it's one of the things we talk about in chapter 10 we, we, we literally go look at all the points of entry here, and we do a whole chapter about points of entry into the movement. That's you know? awesome. Yeah. Well, Josh, I, we're going to wrap up soon. I got two my favorite two questions of the of the conversation, but I just want to honor you for writing this book, for being part of a movement that most of us didn't even know we needed to be involved in, let alone we didn't even know about. We care about our food, and we most of us have started to really waken up. I feel like society has reached a tipping point where we're just not going to be pushed around by McDonald's anymore. So thank you for being a part of that. We honor you for writing this amazing book, and I really want it to be successful so more people join. And uh, hopefully all my listeners are out there are already ordering it off Amazon as we speak. Click, 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 click. <laughs> yeah. um, well, uh, so my last two questions, um, one, this show is called Everything's Interesting with Jesse Mogul because I truly find everything interesting. We could have talked about shovels all day, mm. and I would have been fascinated. That's great. You've done yeah. a lot of research. I mean, you, I'm sitting here in your sound studio, and you've got fuel and the good fortune and the big mm-hmm. fix and yep. pump the movie. I mean, I've got it's time for an intervention, generation revolution. You yeah. have done a lot, and you're a sounding board for society like Get on board with this, and if whether you want to focus on kiss the ground now or just look at your entire career in general, what mm. is some, what is something that you find immensely interesting that you would not have going into the projects? For me, I, you know, I'll focus on kiss the ground for right now. Obviously, there's a lot of different projects that we could do. Uh, you know, from a global level, every problem has a solution, and the solution usually involves pulling back to a macro level. That's why we call our production company the Big Picture Ranch, you know? Big picture. You got to pull back. You got to get macro. You got to get you got to get not micro. You got to get farther away from the subject. Incorporate more of the issue. And then the problem and the solution start to become one and the same. So, that's the same with global warming. 
It's the same with our food crisis, our water crisis. What's interesting to me right now is that the soil is the intersection of all of these problems and it's the intersection of all of these solutions. Right. We literally shift this one thing and all of these other things begin to shift. That is very interesting. But we couldn't see that until we pulled away from the soil a little bit and looked down. That's awesome. You know, I, I often tell people that nothing on this planet would hold value if it wasn't for the fact that we have an abundance of food and water. That gold or a house, nothing. There, there, I, I, I ask you, listener, to, to find something that would hold value more than food or water if you did not have plenty of food and water. There would just, it would not exist. Right. And so it matters to me that, that you care about this, and I want more people to be involved. So you are doing a speech. It's a TED Talk. It's whatever. You're on stage. The entire world can hear you. Mm. Language has no barrier. Mm. The entire world. Everybody can hear this is your final message before the crowd stands up and gives you a standing ovation and you walk off stage what is that message you want the world to hear save the soil save the world